1: And welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, we are joined by Cale Weston. He has a long and very interesting resume. Former State Department operative working extensively in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's also a former congressional candidate and author of The Mirror Test, America's War in Iraq and Afghanistan.
2: You've done a lot. (laughs) Yeah, and I've got the... Gray hair and wrinkles now to prove it. I guess. That's a pretty good looking head of hair you got over there. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, but, yeah,
3: but most of us get the gray hair and wrinkles and don't have all of the things you have to show for <laughs> right, it. Right. Um, I Would you just tell us like a little bit about your experience with the State Department and sort of what led you to, um, to decide to write a book about that experience?
2: Sure. So, you know, rewind to September 11, 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in government at the time, but I think none of us envisioned that uh, the last 20 years would be. Get a little uh, closer to my please. The last 20 years would be uh, war, uh, particularly for our military. I ended up doing seven of my 11 years in the State Department in Iraq and Afghanistan. So part of the goal was to get stories on the page that aren't well known because a lot of them involve the Iraqi and the Afghan people. So a big motivation of my book, a big chunk of my book, is to try and be a. An interpreter of sorts between the the people who were affected on the ground, our military, but also sort of the big policy issues that we were dealing with. And I was ready to write. I wanted to get back west. I missed Utah. I'm from Utah. I enjoy mm-hmm. the mountains, and the deserts, and so decided to try and get a book agent. Got a book agent. Got a great editor. Got a great publisher who pretty much allowed me to try and write as many stories as I could um, and get it get it published. And luckily, it it did. What published. was your
3: purpose? Like, what did you want to come from the book?
2: Well, the title itself is called The Mirror Test um, for a reason. It's based on a medical concept, actually, which is when someone is disfigured, particularly veterans at war, there's sort of a moment where doctors will say, when is that person, that corporal, that captain, that colonel, ready to kind of turn around and look in the mirror and say, hey, this, this war has physically changed me. And my my goal and objective was to try and use that metaphor for our country. And of course, what's gone on the last few weeks has only, I think, made that even more, more important, which is uh, how do we reckon with two decades of war that has not really been shared by our country? My dad and uncles were in Vietnam, and we had a draft at that time. So I think the kitchen table conversations during Vietnam were very different than they have been in the last two decades. So the book was my attempt to uh, make sure that the Iraqi and the Afghan stories were shared and also to challenge the reader to say, hey, what are some of the things that we might see if we look into that mirror, which is pretty broken right now.
3: So what's the last couple of weeks been like for you watching the war in Afghanistan come to an end?
2: It's been tough. It's been very hard for all of us who um, spent time in Afghanistan uh, for you, Utahns out there, Afghanistan is an amazingly beautiful country. Um, very resilient people. It reminds me a lot, actually, of the West, except for the Taliban and the bombs. <laughs> but it's been it's been heart wrenching. It's been uh, disappointing. It's been painful. Whether you know my friends who of mine who were in the military, I was filling in the State Department. All of us who had a role over there uh, looked at what was going on and saw the human tragedy in real time. And also felt helpless at the same time. There's not much we could do, even if we tried. Uh, we tried to get people out, and a group I worked with, we have got about 20 families and 58 Afghans out, but more more people were left behind. That's
1: so. That's kind of the issue here, right? You know, we sit over here, and unless you have a family member who's in the military, it it doesn't necessarily resonate. Uh, like you said, when we talk about Vietnam, it was something the entire country dealt with. Whereas I feel like, if you were in America, you could kind of have never been touched by the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan conflicts. You know, you 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 didn't go there. There was nothing here. There wasn't this uh, enormous effort to have us all kind of galvanized behind this one uh, this one goal. Uh, so, do you think that's part of what we are experiencing now? When the people on the ground, us, uh, we don't have the empathy. For these people, because uh, the, the Afghans who want to come here, because literally right now they are this is life and death for them. This if if they don't get to leave, they will be massacred.
2: Yeah, those a good point. So I think the context of wars that have been fought by a very narrow slice of our country, the military, four tours, five tours. I did seven years, which was unusual, but hadn't planned to be over there for seven years, but also didn't want to leave and hand off to the next State Department person and say, hey, get to know Fallujah get to know Helmand. So I think that, um, you know, there were two big wars that happened early on and Iraq, in my view, had nothing to do with 9-11 as Afghanistan did. And then I think all governments that we've had pretty much wanted us to go shopping. Uh, for a long time, it was Walmart. And now it's we're Amazoning ourselves into oblivion. But that's, I think, easier for any government uh, to have the American people do because if your kids are deployed and, you know, your high school friends are getting blown up in Iraq or Afghanistan. It changes the politics of, I think, foreign policy. So I think whether Republican or Democratic administrations, and I ran as a Democrat in Utah, I'm a proud card-carrying Democrat, but there's plenty of accountability, Mm -hmm. I think, about how these wars have been subcontracted to, again, a very uh, small part of our country, which makes the wars go on more easily. If we had had a draft, and again, my dad and uncles were in Vietnam, I think that there would have been a reckoning about what are the goals? What are the limits? What are the things that we should or shouldn't be doing overseas?
3: I, I mean, I'm in a veterans group and there were plenty of times where I would talk to people who would not even really remember that we were at war, that there were moms losing kids and there were, you know, brought, and the thing that really broke my heart was that even if they come back, they're not The same. Right. Like we've broken them by sending them to war.
2: Yeah, I was just in Denver recently uh, visiting some friends who were Marines, corporals and sergeants and linking a, a journalist with them. And, you know, Dean, who's been around the block in Afghanistan and Iraq, said, you know, that there's usually these two stereotypes of the veterans, the broken veteran who never recovers and then the veteran who's climbing Kilimanjaro with one leg. And I think the truth is actually in between,
3: mostly in between I think yeah. it
2: is, and yeah. yet it doesn't you know we should we should really take care of the people. I that, blame
3: us, the media because we <laughs> like those stories well <laughs> and, and they're important stories, yeah. and yeah. I
2: think the spectrum in between, and Dean said to a New York Times journalist at at the table there said, "You know most of the veterans tend to try and get on um and I think my experience is that 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 that's true." doesn't mean that the VA and, and the resources our country commits to the veteran population shouldn't be funded and, and the people who need more help get it. That's all true. Um, but I think that there's such thing as post-traumatic um, growth, which people don't talk as much about. And that doesn't, again, excuse the, the post-traumatic stress that's out there. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, what war did is refocus me in a way that, hey, what's important What do you want to be doing? What don't you want to be doing? What should your country be doing? What shouldn't your country be doing? And I can tell you if I hadn't spent seven years in two wars, I wouldn't have run for Congress in a red state as a Democrat um, because I used to say on the campaign trail, uh, I've done harder things than run for Congress as a Democrat in Utah. uh, (laughs) But it's one of the most important things I'll ever do and I still believe that. The other point I would make, um, whether I was in Beaver County, where my my parents grew up and my uncle was a county commissioner in Iron County or Washington County, is that in the wars, the line that the Iraqis and the Afghans appreciated most, and it's the one I think I really meant most, was I would say, I always keep the promises I make, which is why I don't make very many. Well, our president, President Biden in our country, has promised the Afghan people certain things, and I think that's where we are today. How many of these Afghans are going to be able to be moved to places like Utah? And I would challenge all of our listeners that it's a test for us to, are we going to welcome, uh, to your point, Afghans who left with just the shirts on their back? And is it going to be sort of a one-week headline, which I'm glad the media are reporting about the first Afghan who arrived? Or are we actually going to care enough to say, hey – there are more families coming here. We're not going to turn this into an anti-immigrant, anti-refugee political talking point, which is very real out there as well.
3: It's already happening. It is. Yeah.
2: And that's going to, I think, require us as a community to figure out if we're going to beat that back and say, hey, the story of America, the story of Utah is a story of, of being kicked out of certain parts of the country and finding, finding- Finding a home. Finding a
1: home. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion because there's a lot to, to, to kind of unravel here. Uh, Kale's lived uh, a very interesting life, and hopefully he, he will use some of that education and information to inform and enlighten us. You're listening to Voices of Reason.
0: I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold.
1: We are back. Jason Lee and Amy Donaldson speaking today. This is Voices of Reason uh, with Cale Weston, former State Department operative who worked in uh, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan for seven years. Also ran for Congress as a Democrat in Utah. Not an easy task. Also the author of the Mirror Test, America's War in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, uh, we were talking kind of offline. This is a time when... America can get involved in this effort, right? America at large. This is all of us who sat back and let our lives just move on. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we had a few things happen here with the the economy and stuff, but they weren't shooting bullets at us and there were no roadside bombs. But now there are thousands, tens of thousands, and I say hundreds of thousands of of potential uh, new immigrants that would like to leave their war-torn country, war-torn that we helped create. By the way, this is yeah. this is our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and want to come here, and they they would be from Afghanistan, and and we've seen just these crazy photos of the Kabul uh, airports where people are hanging off at, um, of uh, the the wheels yeah, of can. the planes leaving, yeah. and they're doing all they can just to stuff themselves. This is, you know. Uh, What the huddled masses yearning to be free. This is
3: sort of epitomizing that, right? right? Yeah, I mean, and honestly, as I'm watching this unfold, when sort of I don't know when things just went sideways completely. Because I thought this evacuation was happening really months ago. I thought it began, you know, basically after the agreement with the Taliban under President Trump. But I didn't even know that they weren't even processing special immigrant visas until President Mm -hmm. Biden got into office. So those are political questions that I have no. I just didn't want people to be killed or, or hurt on their way to the airport. But I noticed you, I follow you on social media, and I noticed you um, tweeting about people reaching out to you. And I wondered, and that's a unique thing. That doesn't happen to regular people. What was that like for you to have people specifically reaching out to you saying, can you help us?
2: Sure. Um, you know, when you spend seven years in two wars, three of those years were in Afghanistan, you get to know the people. So when they started to, to really panic and be be genuinely afraid that, hey, the Taliban are at the gates and now they're through the gates. They reached out to all of us who had worked with them. So I was one of a number of Americans who were getting the SOSs at midnight or the the emails or you know various ways. And what happened is there was a large informal network that kind of got established and sto- good stories have been written about this. But of course, the limit is is that I'm reading Twitter accounts and my email from half a world away. And that was hard because when I was in the government, I was able to get a lot done. And now I'm a former candidate, writer, teacher, all those other titles, but not in the system. But I knew pretty quickly that our our visa pipeline was not going to be able to handle the the flood that was coming. And like you say, Amy, there's plenty of reasons why Um, the Trump administration intentionally cut off the, the visa program. I think the Biden team was caught unaware in a big way. Uh, they had the president of Afghanistan say, "Don't start pulling people out, or it'll look like yeah." You're giving that up on I the didn't country. understand.
3: That don't evacuate people because it will upset the Taliban. Yeah, and so I was there's
2: like, there's bipartisan yeah. accountability. It's not just one party. And I think one day we need to look back and see how badly this was handled by multiple uh, parts of our government over time. But at the t- at the immediate time, it was how do you help people? And so yeah. I think it literally became trying to link people up as best you can. And some of the people who got out, it. Really came down to luck. You were you were deadly unlucky if you were there the day the the bomb exploded, and you know we had our own Utah Marine killed there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were lucky if the Marine grabbed you and pulled you in. So all of us who were working the angles, I, I worked uh, closely with a Marine general when I was in Helmand, Southern Afghanistan, and he's a retired three star general, and he still felt helpless too. You know, we were all trying to use the networks that we had. I know a retired four-star general.
3: What were some of the stories you were getting, though, that people were saying? Were these people that we owed something to, that we made promises to? Yeah,
2: these were a good, good question. I mean one, for example, uh, was my interpreter in eastern Afghanistan, and he had been in the visa pipeline already. And about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, I had reached out to a State Department friend of mine who's a pretty senior guy in Kabul Um, and was working that before all this um, kind of uh, meltdown happened. His story is important because, again, I think it humanizes these, quote, visa applicants. He and I were in Humvees in eastern Afghanistan. At one point, uh, survived a suicide car bomb attack in Host Province where this Taliban extremist named Haqqani uh, has a very large network. It's also a province where Osama bin Laden used to live, so those of us old enough to remember 9-11 know uh, that's a pretty important part of the, the world as far as our own history. Well, he survived that. And then we're in another case where uh a roadside bomb killed two of our Afghan guards. And and this Afghan sits right next to me as my interpreter. So it's not a theoretical, hey, you put your life on the line for what the Americans were trying to do. I mean, he literally was next to me as at least twice, if not multiple times during that year and a half, we were almost killed. So the fact that I couldn't get him out, he's still there, shows how long the line is, how bureaucratic the system is, and how much of the mad scramble it was at the airport, which we all saw on TV.
3: Yeah, because there's no doubt that he was owed some debt of gratitude to this, but from this country, right? Like he's one of the people we talk about, like you say, in theory. And Should have been
1: among the first in
3: line. And he's still not there.
2: Yeah, and I think there are a lot of stories like that. Some got out, but most did not. So when you look at the issue of moving ahead um, – you know, do we care enough to say to our government, "Let's not forget those left behind." We want our American citizens out. We want the dual nationals out. We want the green card holders—all that. But what about people like my my interpreter? Mm-hmm. Uh, He's—I just got an email from him yesterday. I got another email um, a couple of days ago from another Afghan family, and they're asking, "What do we do?" You know, the Taliban are saying we're not going to harm you. But how credible have the uh, Taliban ever been? So the fear is not a small thing. It's huge. And I think a lot of families right now are wondering if they open their door and walk out onto the streets of Kabul, what's going to happen? And the fact that we're not there anymore makes it even that much more difficult. So I know Secretary Blinken was in Doha recently talking about setting up a, a new process. And I hope that working with the Taliban, the new Taliban government, that they're willing to uh, allow more people out. But it's entirely dependent on what the Taliban let us do.
1: Let me ask you. So what can people hear? I mean, I, I'm, is is there some action that someone like me, someone who's listening to this can take if they are so inclined to want to help this effort to get the, uh, the folks out who are trying to get out because they want to stay alive? What What can they do?
2: Well, I think there are many organizations set up that are credible and legitimate. Um, No one left behind is one. I think some are tied to our veteran community. I think here locally, you know, we should give credit to Governor Cox, in my view. He wrote a letter to President Biden uh, with, I believe, about a dozen other governors, Republican and Democratic, saying, hey, we we will accept the Afghan refugees. We're not afraid. We're not going to put up Mm -hmm. a wall. Um, And I think that as we've just had our first arrive, and I believe we'll have more so Utahns are proud of saying, "Hey, we're a welcoming state." We actually, from our own DNA and our own experience, know what it's like to be chased uh, from the Midwest to literally, the East, yeah. literally mm-hmm. and killed um, mm-hmm. to uh, the second driest state in our country. So, if we're going to live up to that ideal sense of ourselves, I think you know we need to say, "Hey, we're not going to talk about would-be terrorists." We're going to say these are human beings who. Have nothing, and whether it's resources in terms of money or even time, I think there will be ways to help. Yeah,
3: I think a couple of them have said, you know, we need you, but we don't necessarily need you right now. I just, you know, I donated my miles through Delta. Delta actually set up a program. I think it's called Miles for Refugees. I may have that wrong. I'll double check. But um, my, <laughs> I don't trust anybody anymore. <laughs> so I was worried, like, oh, who's going to get these miles? Like, are there things like that? Like do you know if there's ways to help people, like maybe we want to do that when we come back? When we come
1: back, yeah. Jesus I, giving I, me the signal. I always
3: ask a really hard question right I before want break. To, <laughs> and
1: I, we want to stay on time. So when we, we'll, we'll finish that up, and then there's so much more to talk about. Uh, we're speaking today with uh, Cale Weston. He's an author, a former congressional candidate. But the job we, we started talking about is he worked in a State Department based in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, has a, a personal sense of understanding of what, what has transpired there And how we, as our society, owe a debt of gratitude to those who helped us while we spent the last 20 years over there trying to help the people uh, in those countries. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back, Jason Lee, Amy Donaldson, speaking today with Kale Weston, former uh, State Department operative who worked in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. He's also been an author and a former congressional candidate. Uh, we were talking in the last segment about what people can do to kind of help uh, yeah. this transition for folks who are trying to get from Afghanistan into America. And then we got some other things we want to chat about. But uh, Amy was asking a quick well, question. Well,
3: I guess, is it more helpful to... Try to figure out ways to donate money or miles, or is it more helpful to call your congressional representative or your senator and say, I want you to honor the promises that are, this country made under four different presidents?
2: That's a good point. I would say both.
3: Okay. <laughs> Now's the
2: time for all of the above, okay, including your time, and I think including you know writing those old-fashioned letters to the editor, because oh. I think a lot of what we're dealing with is a sense in our country of... Are we a country of walls, draw bridges or bridges? Um, Mm. And I think that this is going to be a test of that. It's not to criticize anyone's personal politics, but I think Mm. whether it was President Reagan talking about we're a nation of immigrants or John F. Kennedy – having similar words, that we've prided ourselves, I think, on being a place where the world is welcome. And I know here in Utah we do that too. So I think there are many ways to to help. It's just now, I think, is not the time to choose to be apathetic because apathy is a choice and it's actually a luxury. And these are people leaving a war Mm -hmm. zone where they have anything but – Uh, The luxury of being apathetic about, you know, what war can mean for for families.
3: Before we leave this, I just wanted to touch on one other thing. Some of the people who are already whipping up this anti-immigrant sentiment are saying that these are people who hate America at their heart, like their core is that they hate America. They hate American ideals. They hate Western culture. I have found this to be absolutely fiction. And I, I mean, I don't have the experience we don't know you anything. have, we want to... but I know people who've immigrated. One of my favorite restaurants was an Afghan, uh, Afghan restaurant and uh, there's still an amazing Afghan kitchen on main street. If they you're hungry, it's amazing. I, I took but,
2: my but, students there. But
3: no, but I, I, I have just talked to them like they, they I believe what Trevor Noah said one time and that is that America is the only country that is also an ideal. And there, you don't know that that fire burns in someone who's never stepped foot here. Right. Let, me, n- let me tell you a story
2: yeah. I think that addresses that uh, important point. Uh, does anyone remember when Neil Armstrong passed away? Yes. So it was by 2012, I believe. Yeah. The only email I got or the only message I got from anyone was from a young yeah. Afghan medical doctor living in the province that we just bombed, uh, Nangahar. Jalalabad. And I've put it in some of my own writing. I put it in my book, and I won't do justice to it, but it was unfiltered English. And he said he was so sad about the passing of Nail, N-A-I-L, Armstrong. And at the end, he says that that story and the astronauts going to the moon proved that nothing is impassable. And he spelled it I M P A S S A B L E. And what I think that speaks to is that immigrants and people who have been through the worst in life uh, sometimes can remind us what we take for granted every day of the week. So my experience with Afghans and the people coming over here, that they will be probably the hardest working new Americans. Mm-hmm. They will probably be the most grateful new Americans. And they will be among us and we'll learn a lot from them.
1: It sounds like the story of most every immigrant group who yeah. has yeah. ever come here. Yeah. You know they are doing the fort- their best because they are trying to show you how – importance is to them, how much they are grateful to be here, and how much they want to contribute.
2: Yeah, I read a statistic. um, I'm working on on an op-ed, actually, for the Desert News with my 94-year-old Rotarian friend and John Zacchio. Hi, John. I'll make sure you hear this link. (laughs) Um, But I think it was a Newsweek article that showed that half of the Fortune 500 companies Thirteen and a half million employees were either started by immigrants or the children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So there's an economic argument, not just a moral argument. The values of of the United States of America, what I spoke to when I was representing our country officially, which is we do stand for certain things. We stand Mm -hmm. for the rights of individuals and women's rights and girls' education. And those are important things. And now I think we need to look in the mirror and say, hey – how welcome are these people going to be here? Yeah, and, and the other
3: thing help? I would caution people: don't assume you know an immigrant's politics, because they are very conservative people. They are also very progressive people, and uh, I know some of them. Uh, they'll once they become citizens and have the opportunity to participate in the political process, they feel sometimes um, corralled into one right. ideology or the other based on how people support their you know them them and their people you know the people who have come here and who are trying to build lives because you you need opportunity and whoever said it's all about the money it's all you know it's economy 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 got it right and if you make an a a welcoming environment and opportunity you'll see they are just as diverse in their political ideology as anybody else any other group and so i just want to throw that out there i also just wanted to shift a little bit to like this week it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I started the Apple TV um, documentary documentary, and I had to shut it down because I got too emotional. <laughs> but I I mean, do you have some thoughts on sort of this 20 years and we're just barely seeing this exit? I mean, I, I am old enough to remember the mission accomplished thing and thinking, wait, 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 don't do this. This is going to get people killed and this is going to give people a false sense of security.
2: Yeah. No, I have a lot uh, of views on this. I'll try and keep it to two minutes and two seconds, as Chuck <laughs> Woolery used to say. Um, you know, I Chuck look at Wool- how how united we were in some ways in the days after nine eleven. 11 we were all saying this changes everything. And, of course, there was a huge amount of fear and that fear was channeled into – An unnecessary war, Iraq, and I believe Afghanistan needed to needed to be a war. We started; it was badly mishandled after. But there was a sense that hey, we were sort of in this together because there were people who wanted to hurt us. Twenty years later, we're basically at war with each other, and that's tragic. I think it's dangerous. And during the campaign, a a friend overseas said to me, "Hey, Kale, the problem is is you're in love with your country," and that's true. I care too much. I think like you, Mm -hmm. Amy, and. Jason and your listeners about the state of our country right now. And I think in some ways we all need to think about how these last 20 years have either um, reinforced some of the positives, but, but but unfortunately some of the negatives and some of the division. And I think all of us need to, need to do what we can to get back to a sense that there's more that should unite us as Americans um, than divides us. And to me, that's sort of the big arc. From a sense of unity but also based on fear, fear of terrorism, fear of anthrax well, to basically red versus view America or maskers and anti-maskers. And yeah. I'm more worried about that division at home actually and I was almost mm. killed in eastern Afghanistan than I am about terrorism overseas and we could probably talk a while about that. I Is- was just
3: going to say, you know, you talk about it, all of this coming together and I felt that. I remember I'll never forget watching – a press conference with Rudy Giuliani, with my husband. We we're both crying. Ed's like figuring out how he can send money to people. We're watching people put you know pictures up of missing relatives and, and just talking to everyone about how galvanizing this was. Then I remember reading about a woman being beaten in Texas because she was Muslim. And I thought, you know what? It wasn't... It We all didn't pull together. You know, there were people we excluded.
2: That's a good point. And
3: the fear also did hurt some people. And I remember them... Uh, you know, there was a lot of vandalism and and um, terrorism that domestic terrorism that was perpetrated against Muslim Americans. Yeah,
2: the fear of the other. Uh, but but I think you're right. And what yeah. was different is our leaders said that's not good. Yes, let's not do that. Yeah. President George W. Bush said we're better than that. I think unfortunately today that division has become political.
3: Exactly. I mean that that that's to me. I saw us recognizing it and saying, oh, we don't want to be these people. And trying to figure that out, but then I saw, you know, I, I'll never forget John McCain, a personal hero of mine, telling that woman at a at a town hall that President Obama, you know, he was not president then, you're Senator Canada. Obama then, that he was not a Muslim. That he was a good person. And he, he would let him say, let her say. He took, he, the, microphone he took the microphone from her and he said, "That's not true. He's a good father. He's a good husband." And as
2: Colin Powell said, "Well, what if he was a Muslim? What's wrong with that?"
3: Exactly. But that, I mean, I think they're You're right. I am in love with this country, and I have. Just tried really hard lately to see those warts, but oh, it's a painful, painful thing.
1: When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion because this is – I remember 20 years – ago. you remember being able to go to the um, the gate and meet your uh, people at the airport? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, th- there are people here listening to this, forgot about it, and then there are You used to not to have to disrobe, right? There, there you used a to be able to keep thing. your clothes this, on. <laughs> TSA was not a thing 20 years ago. Uh, speaking today with uh, Cale Weston about uh, what's going on in our world – starting in Iraq and Afghanistan and how it's coming to America now because we are now going to have to deal with the aftermath here on our soil. You're listening to Voices of Reason. with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson, Jason Lee, speaking today with Kale Weston, former uh, State Department operative who's been helping inform us and educate us on what went on in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's written a book called uh, The Mirror Test, America's War in Iraq and Afghanistan. So please read that and get some of the understanding we're getting right now. You know, I, I kind of ended the last segment talking about what it was like uh September 10th uh 2001 yeah. when you could when the world was still kind of what we had been used to but uh when you could go to the airport and you know things were different and today we we deal with some other things we we've we were galvanized initially from the uh, the act of terrorism that happened on 9/11 but since then there's been this in, increasing creepiness to uh creeping to division and we are at this kind of polar opposite thing now and and to be honest with you, I, I worry more about that ongoing than I do uh, the terrorism because we all can kind of you know wrap our minds around trying to you know work at stopping that. But how do we work to stop the division between us as Americans? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you know this whole idea about united we stand, we got to get closer to that united because right now uh, we're, we're allowing the the opposite ends on the left and the right to divide us in a way that. Is poisoning
3: us. What, what is this anniversary like for you, for someone who spent so much time there? Is it – especially where we're at right now politically and with the Afghan sort of uh, just the – I mean I, it's funny to me. Depending on who you talk to, it was a major success or it was a terrible disaster. And I think if we left people behind that we owed something to, it was a terrible disaster. And the fact that 13 um, young people lost their lives, to me, that did not go well. We can't call that a success. So what is it like for you to approach this anniversary almost simultaneously with this, you know, the end of the war and this kind of unraveling?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a very heavy time, I think, uh, unquestionably. I think that, you know, you can't help but think about the Marines I knew, the service members who lost their lives. In the end of my book, I basically take the words of friends and family and just put it on the page because I wanted – potentially our policy people to understand that the policy should match the sacrifice because the sacrifice will always be there. But mm-hmm. does the policy match that? And then, of course, there's the, the wars that go on for the people uh, like the Afghans. I teach a class to Marines uh, at Quantico. It's online now, and it's uh, home fronts, as war fronts, the civilian experience in war. So my goal there, again, is to show that we always at one level knew we would go home whether state department like me or our military, but they don't again have that choice. So I think it's a heavy time. I think it's uh, as you mentioned, Jason, a very divided time, which makes mm-hmm. me just fundamentally sad. I mean, we're all in love with our country at some level, yeah. And breaking up is very hard to do. And <laughs> uh, at some telling
3: our con- we you need counseling, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I just the entire
1: country is that, is that possibility?
2: I just want our country to live up to the best that we represent. I still yeah. think there's again the the young Afghan looking up at the same moon that we all look up yeah. at. He's got now drones between him and the moon. Um, but there's still this sense of possibility in our country. I think it was Jim Mattis, uh, President mm-hmm. Trump's secretary of defense and a quite well-known retired – Mike Mattis. Uh, is, that, is it Jim Mattis? Jim. Yeah, Jim. Uh, Mad Dog. Mad Dog, Mad Dog? Mad yeah, yeah, yeah. Mattis, yeah. Yeah, yeah Jim. Um, And he used to say we're a country that can inspire, not just intimidate. And I think that uh, the challenge moving forward after the last two decades is – Uh, Are we going to find it in ourselves, you know, Lincoln's Better Angels, to continue to be a a world leader that people want to follow and that inspires people? Mm -hmm. I still think there's a lot of that inspiration that can come out. But it's been clouded by, to your point, fear, pointing fingers, saying stay away, Um, a lot of self-absorption, I think. I think I I wish we listened to those generals a lot more. Yeah. They they have a lot of wisdom
1: that we kind of gloss over, I feel like.
3: I— feel like we, I vastly underestimated how much fear, and I knew there was a lot of fear during 9-11, but I also kind of focused on the positive. My grandparents at the time were living in LA, and people would help them with their groceries and, you know, do these little acts of service for one another that I thought were, I'd not, that hadn't happened before. I hadn't seen that in my lifetime. So, but I, I guess I underestimated how much fear was poisoning us slowly And this fear of Muslims and this fear of them coming, bringing it to our, you know, our, you know, our land, you know, actually on our American soil. And I just saw that sort of creep into everything. And it's such a powerful motivator. Is there anyone do you see in the political universe, either locally or nationally, that um, that's using this positive, like aspirational ideas to motivate people and to galvanize people because all I see from most leaders is be afraid of them, be afraid of that, be afraid of this, do this, or they will take over that. I don't see, you know what? If we do this, this is the amazing thing that will happen to us.
2: Yeah. I think there's a lot of, not only be afraid of the people who look different from you. It's also be afraid of your neighbor in the town down the road who may be in the rural part of the state. Again, my district that I ran in had, the bluest bubble imaginable salt lake city (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but it also had you know many counties who were very very rural and i spent most of my time in the rural counties for that same reason i in terms of the leaders that we have right now um i think we've got a lot of small people in big jobs and that's on us Mm -hmm. as the american people are we okay with um, how much money, I think, has infiltrated our politics, Oof. how much gerrymandering, whether it's the far left or the far right. If you're only running in a district where you are trying to be the most extreme voice in your party, you extrapolate that out across our whole Congress. You extrapolate that out across our country. And I think we kind of are at a breaking point institutionally on some things. I still believe, however, comma however, um, that there will probably be some of these veterans who come back from the wars who hopefully will speak to the better angels who will say, hey, we don't need to repeat that. We don't need to be afraid not only of people who look different than we do. And Utah is now a quarter non-white. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I think that's a good thing. That shouldn't be something that we're afraid of. There are other people in politics who want to say be afraid of that. Um, but I think our best leaders historically, and you can go all the way back to Abraham Lincoln uh, through JFK, FDR, uh, Reagan, they, they did try and make us a better person by their politics and now i think we've got some people who uh play the opposite
3: i, I i'm gonna disagree with you i'm gonna <laughs> i gonna agree that they did have some moments of that yeah. but they also did some real divi- dividing Two minutes. i mean fdr interned japanese citizens sure. right and people anyone of japanese descent um ronald reagan participated in the southern strategy yeah. you know with gusto Um, And I ran Contra. Need we go there? Um, So I feel like I have always had to accept, maybe it's because I, one of my first memories of a news story, someone asked us the other day, is Nixon resigning? (laughs) And I feel like this has defined my life, right? Mm -hmm. That it's just been people I can't trust Mm -hmm. and that are a mixture of, you know, good people who maybe got blindsided by money. I really think money is a poison, but I think power is a poison. I watched what people are willing to do to stay adjacent to power and I almost feel like it, it's a, a toxic thing that I don't want a part of. So I guess kind of as we approach this 9-11, I mean I've really been asking myself like how do I honor the best – of the people who went there and searched for people, the firefighters who ran into that building, the police officers, the, the clergy who were there. There was a clergy that I, I, I read about extensively who he was killed uh, helping evacuate people. Um, how do I honor those people? And that idea that we should take care of, we are our brother's keeper.
2: 30 seconds. How yeah, I think you get active locally. I mean, your, your podcast is one example. I think for all of your listeners, it's, you know, are you, reading about these people? Are you studying, you know, what happened over there? It's easy not to, we've got our Amazon accounts and our Netflix accounts. And I think it takes a choice to actually understand the world, to to maybe go knock on the door of the neighbor that maybe disagrees with you politically, but maybe has a lot more in common than you realize. So I think that that local action is important. I think that showing that you care is important. Um, And again, that takes effort, whether it's financial or your time the most valuable thing we can ever give is our time and how we choose to devote our time Um, to the point of, I think the best leaders. I I do think, Far from perfect. There are those who try to make us less mean to each other. Yeah. And to me, that's sort of the bottom line. You should a lot have elected of, those guys. A lot of mean so in our well, country. Well,
3: and, those, and then nobody's perfect, and yeah. you're not going to agree with everybody. But I, I do think you're right, that they're yeah, – like, I, focus on the thing they're asking you to do yeah. that makes you a better person.
2: And in my book, you know, I intentionally write about Topaz. My parents grew up in Melford, and I wanted people in the book to understand that war changes us at home. And the great liberal Earl Warren broke down and cried when he was asked, you know, when he was attorney general about the internment, you know, how could you allow it? And he knows as the great liberal icon of the court, that was probably his biggest human failing was not to stand up and say, this is wrong.
3: The Supreme Court actually upheld that. Yeah. Correct.
2: Sure. And if you want to read, you know, courage, read the, the justice who uh, objected. I'm working on another book and maybe I'll end with this. There's a Colorado governor, a Republican, who no, no one's ever heard of. Um, and he lost his career because during that era he stood up and said we 're not we 're not going to do this. this is wrong and so there are stories of I think moral courage um, that cost people a lot, and the people who tend to win in politics are unfortunately the ones to your point who play the game or maybe are attracted to the wrong things. but I think it 's on us as a country after twenty years and and the two decades since nine eleven to take stock and to take a hard look at where we are and to say, hey, this could get worse. January 6th, in my view, is a preview if we're not careful. 9-11 was also a preview. We're lucky that there hasn't been another terrorist attack. But that's kind of the spectrum that we're on. Genuine threats overseas, but the ones we bring on ourselves. And there's plenty of accountability, I think, that we all have in making our country a better country in the next 20 years.
1: Kale, thank you very much. Uh, this has been fascinating. Hey, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. What is your Twitter handle?
2: Uh, Kale Weston.
1: At Kale Weston. There you go. Uh, our show's Twitter handle is at, at VOR podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or any of the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. It helps us grow our audience, and uh, we'd love to get your feedback. Until next time, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.
3: A gun in the face.
0: Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today.
3: Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela.
0: They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us.